0: Hello, and welcome to Paramedicast. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Paramedicast. Today we're joined by Callum Sutton. Callum is a paramedic who grew up in Australia and is now based in UK in Bath. He's a specialist paramedic in critical care with the Great Western Air Ambulance Charity. He previously worked as a tactical response unit, joint response paramedic with London Ambulance Service. He has an interest in paramedic education. He's a teaching associate at Monash University, educating trainee critical care paramedics and teaches on a number of education programs, such as the pre-hospital trauma life support course and the difficult airway management course. In this episode, we will discuss Callum's career journey, starting with a move from Australia to the UK and becoming a specialist paramedic in critical care. We will get an insight into Callum's previous unique role as a tactical response and joint response paramedic, working with London Ambulance Service, and discuss Callum's role as a paramedic educator and why he has a keen interest in education and the future of paramedic practice. Callum, it's great to have you on the podcast.
1: Hey Sophie, thanks very much for having me along. Hopefully there'll be some good stuff to uh, chat about.
0: Yeah, I'm sure they will. So Callum, you began your career as a paramedic in Australia while studying at the Victoria University. How was life as a paramedic in Australia? And what was it that started your interest to pursue paramedicine?
1: I guess I always had uh, an interest in being a paramedic or the ambulance service. Um, it was always kind of growing up. It was always going to be one of the emergency services or the military pretty much. And the ambulance service kind of just came to the forefront as I kind of grew up and and got older and kind of learned more about uh, what they did. And actually, what kind of finalised that was um, when I was working. A one of the players had a kind of uh, significant kind of lower limb injury and the, seeing the ambulance crew come out and kind of deal with that and how they dealt with that kind of cemented that that was the that was the way that I wanted to go I guess. And the rest is kind of uh, history of gone from there. I think overall um, I've been lucky enough to kind of uh, go across to South Africa as well and um, spend some time there and uh, obviously Australia and now the UK and I think no matter where I've been, the the job is the same. Uh, you know, it's about going out and helping patients. How you do that and what kind of jobs they are vary slightly, but uh, overall, the fundamentals are, are still the same. So Australia is uh, different to where I've worked in the UK in that um in you know, some of my rural placements and stuff in Australia, we had travel times of an hour to, to kind of get to a job and, and longer to get to the appropriate hospital and stuff. Um, so distance is a, is probably a big difference. Certainly, I think it's, you know, picked up. It's picked up to the same kind of levels uh, over here as over here now. But when I was back in Oz, the kind of demand was probably slightly less than it is in the UK but uh, it was a good challenge i i enjoyed it i enjoyed those kind of longer distances um the chance to kind of get to know your patients quite well and to have to kind of think about um managing the patient not just for 5 10 15 minutes but you know up to up to an hour or or more so um yeah there's there's differences and and subtle differences and you know guidelines are slightly different there's some things you can do in australia that you can't do in the uk and there's and vice versa um but overall i think you know at the end of the day you're receiving a call you're responding to a patient and um and then trying to do the best you can for them um so it is pretty similar wherever wherever you go i think
0: that's interesting and you said that you were really enjoying the challenge and especially conveying patients for long periods of time if you were enjoying those challenges why did you move to the UK
1: so the move to the UK was kind of um uh timing uh just worked out I guess and kind of uh life outside of ambulance as well so I came to the UK uh to play cricket when I was about 15 and just kind of traveling around the UK and especially London just kind of sparked a massive interest for me just how busy it was and how big it was. And previously, you know, there hasn't been, there wasn't a great opportunity for paramedics to move around internationally as much, whereas now we're seeing paramedics in the UK, in Canada, Australia, you know, South Africa, all being very possible to move between. And so the UK had a uh, paramedic crisis in terms of not having enough staff london ambulance service were coming to australia to recruit paramedics and i thought that was a, a great opportunity to see a different system to work in a system that is just non-stop uh, like london and and where things are slightly different you know the kind of diff- jobs you would go to are slightly different and you know london has a big kind of interpersonal violence uh, problem as well you're on on demand, all day, every day. Uh, but also outside of outside of work, uh, Australia is a great country. There's plenty to do, but it is you know 24 hours from Europe or North America, South America, etc. And I have always had a bit of a travel bug. So uh, moving to London, where there's four airports, a couple of international train stations, and the chance to travel all over Europe and and the world very easily was a big big calling point, I think.
0: And you mentioned a few differences there with working in London compared to Australia. Just can you share some of your experiences uh, working for London Ambulance Service?
1: Yeah, so I think London Ambulance Service by call volume is... Think the busiest ambulance service in the world. It might be second to uh, FDMI in New York. It's, it's up there as one of the biggest, you know, busiest ambulance services in the world by call volume. Um, so it's pretty nonstop. stop. When you press clear on your MDT, there's another job waiting to come down for you, which is, you know, now pretty similar across the whole of the UK and uh, probably most of the world. But London is, you know, a massive mixing bowl of different cultures, different religions, different uh, people from all over the world, and has some of the most uh, richest postcodes and well off postcodes in the country, as well as the absolute poorest and well below the poverty line postcodes in the country. So it's a a great ambulance service to work for to kind of gain exposure and experience responding to all different types of people and patients you know medically even there's kind of diseases and and things that like tuberculosis uh, for example and that kind of thing which are just not heard of in australia we're lucky enough that um, you know the vaccine uptake and that kind of made australia tuberculosis free so there's you know a chance to to see diseases that you wouldn't have seen back home and help treat those patients it's a, a city that kind of that old adage people always say about you know in london it's fine because you're only 10 minutes away from hospital like you might be able to see the hospital but uh you might be 20 floors up of an apartment block that's lift hasn't been working for the last six months and so actually you're <laughs> you're still you know 25 minutes half an hour plus extricating the patient and then driving through london to try and get to hospital so it, it brings a whole world of different challenges um and then and then the trauma workload is is obviously very high as well just not only from kind of interpersonal violence but just the amount of cyclists road users um That are on the road increases road traffic collisions and um, pedestrian incidents and stuff like that so it is a a very unique place and something i uh, learned a lot from and it's a great place to live as well london's a fantastic place to live and to experience and there's always something happening so yeah thoroughly enjoyed my time uh, my time in london but you know like every ambulance service and every city has has its problems But, yeah, a a very, very uh, enjoyable time whilst I was there.
0: Were you ever phased by that big city life compared to Australia when you came to the UK?
1: No, not really. I think I've always kind of uh, uh, wanted that. So I've kind of always kind of worked, tried to work in Melbourne and kind of the bigger cities and been kind of, that kind of fast-paced lifestyle suits me, I guess, and is is what I'm interested in. So that was part of the part of the calling card for me. Um, I know some of my colleagues that came from like very rural areas of Australia had a more difficult time. I think just the pace of London in general, it does take kind of six months to kind of catch up and um, start to figure out. But not so much that. I guess what was hard or uh, was difficult is moving to a new country, a new city like London, where There are some areas that, you know, you probably don't want to go after dark and that kind of thing if you can avoid it. And, you know, I chose that place to live when I first moved here because I just had no idea that that was the case or that that was the kind of area I was living because why would I? So, yeah, uh, stuff like that can be a bit confronting when you you first arrive. But um, I think if you give it time, that time to kind of for you to get used to the pace of the city, then... And it's a, a thoroughly enjoyable place to be.
0: And how quickly did you realise you were in the wrong place to live?
1: Uh, probably my second shift when I um, went to quite a kind of multi-patient stabbing, gang stabbing on on the estate I was living on. <laughs> um, <laughs> so then I was, <laughs> yeah, that was kind of, oh, whoopsies. But, you know, I, I, I have to, like, in saying that, I walked around uh, London at all times of the evening um in the morning finishing shit big bags etc and um, I, I never was lucky enough to never have any any problems so I don't want to paint London as a you know a dangerous place to be it, uh, it it's not at it all uh obviously' was, like everywhere it has its its problems but um yeah I don't want to oversell that side of it.
0: So Callum, you had an interesting role within the tactical response unit and the, and was a joint response paramedic for over three years with London Ambulance Service. Can you tell us more about this role and what is a tactical response unit paramedic? Uh,
1: yeah, so the London Ambulance Service has the tactical response unit, um, which also uh, forms a joint response unit. So the aim of the Tactical response unit is to be able to provide uh, paramedic level care um, inside a kind of uh, warm to hot zone of a marauding terrorist attack and to work with armed response officers so that they can continue to push forward and confront the threat whilst um, patients can be treated and triaged, you know, so similar to a heart unit or sort um, capability. The difference with London is that the tactical response unit is kind of a 24-7 response and so we have uh, a number of paramedics across London where we start at the same kind of base each day and work in teams but then uh, on RRVs, RVs we'll move out into key areas of London to be able to provide that response so that's the kind of main aim for those rewarding terror attacks and multiple patient type incidents but then day-to-day you know the paramedics on the tactical response unit will respond to uh, normal 999 calls as a as an RRV paramedic and then also be targeted towards those kind of stabbing and shooting type incidents just because you have a bit more experience and uh, exposure to those kinds of incidents. So it can be helpful when uh, when you get there. Um, and then you've also got kind of uh, ballistic uh, body armor that you can use. And so the other parts is when the uh, firearms police need to do a an armed uh, an armed arrest on somebody, then you can go and provide medical cover for that uh, in case anything uh, goes wrong. And then the joint response unit side is uh, a really great setup where the you have a, a police radio from the Metropolitan Police. And you're dedicated to be the paramedic for a borough, and so you will listen into the police radio. There's a, a desk in the London Ambulance Service control room, which is set up to kind of uh, organize and dispatch the joint response unit. And so then you'll go around uh, responding to to calls that involve both police and ambulance, and it's twofold really. It's to get a quick response to those kind of critical calls. Uh, where the police are on scene with uh with no ambulance service, you know, so RTCs, uh, stabbings and shootings. Obviously the police have access to CCTV so you can hear that you know whether the scene is safe or um for you to approach and all that kind of stuff, cutting out the discussions between control rooms, making it a faster response. But also um it's the you have the chance to uh, go and save uh, save a double crewed ambulance um, from having to attend a job where a patient doesn't need to go to hospital. And so um, obviously on a Friday, Saturday night, there's a lot of alcohol around and incidents involving alcohol. And so you, you know, if a patient doesn't need hospital treatment, then you can go and respond alongside the police and uh, save that uh, ambulance to go to another job where they might be needed.
0: Why did you want to go down this role?
1: Well, I think it's a unique opportunity in London. You know, it's, um, it's where that kind of role is probably most needed. And uh, it was interesting to me. Um, uh, there was, you know, a good chance to joint work with different different units and attend those kind of uh, high acuity patients and be able to provide them kind of quick initial care. So, yeah, it was just the kind of the kind of job role that seemed like a, a natural progression in my kind of interests. And I was um, uh, lucky enough to, to join the team. So yeah, I also like to um the kind of team based working. So I worked with the same team for, for my time on, on the tactical response unit. And so you form really uh, good friendships and bonds with those kind of, those people that you stay in contact with for, you know a long time after so the team-based working I thought was a real upside of of the unit as well.
0: And What additional training did you receive for this role?
1: So all of your additional training for the tactical response unit is kind of around uh, incident management and firearm working with firearms and responding to those kind of calls it's not a there's no Clinical increase in scope of practice. You are working at the level of a um, a qualified paramedic. It's not a critical care paramedic role or anything like that. It's a paramedic role, but um, the you have extra training in in those kind of environments and triage and um, initial management of multi patient incidents.
0: And how did you find that interagency working? says you mentioned that you were working alongside the firearms officers. Did you learn a lot from them, and did they learn a lot from you, from a from a tactical medicine side of things?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's um, that's one of the keys of of uh, kind of joint working, whether it be with fire brigade, ambulance, uh, police, R and et cetera. etc. It, it, the more we can learn from each other, the the better. And so, certainly, we learn a lot from from the police officers and the firearms officers. And uh, yeah, helping with their kind of medical training was one of the one of the highlights uh, for me. That I think it's you know it's safe to say that the all kind of all police officers and fire officers, um, but certainly uh, firearms trained uh, medics and public order medics within the police force are an amazing uh, have an have a great skill set and and provide excellent patient care whenever I've. Uh, back them up to to any jobs
0: what challenges did you face within this role have you got any experiences or 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 some sort of cases that you'd like to share with us
1: yeah I think human uh kind of getting on top of human factors um and kind of your crew resource management this was kind of the big introduction for me certainly a lot of the scenes you attend especially kind of around public areas uh, as well as responding to you know you're treating that patient for the injury uh that they have um you know and on in this circumstance usually that you know a gunshot wound or stab stab wound but you know a lot of the time or some of the time there's multiple patients um there's also you know often an ongoing uh, amount of disorder um and so it's uh learning to kind of manage that uh ensure your safety um but still ensure that you're providing patient care is uh was a big kind of learning point um and something that i've you know that that learning i use often still kind of in my in my practice now so that's uh that that was a big thing
0: was there a higher level of like risk acceptance with this kind of role or because from my understanding the firearms officers are there to neutralize the threat and then is it then the paramedics then come in and provide that medical care or are you almost with the firearms officers in that that risk environment
1: yeah so i think it, it's very variable and it. It depends, you know, massively on the situation at, at hand. I think, you know, there's no want or uh, need, you know, it'd be uh, dangerous and counterproductive for an, you know, ambulance paramedic to be uh, running around, uh, getting in the way of the of the firearms officers. Um, so it's certainly the firearms officers are pushing ahead to to take that. on that threat and then you are um, are there to kind of move behind them to start treating casualties. Um, But I think in a day-to-day circumstance, you know, that works really well in exercises and um, planning and that kind of thing. But I think, you know, one thing we probably haven't got so good at yet is making exercises and SOPs actually work for what really happens day-to-day. And so, in reality, often uh, services, whether they be, you know, people like tactical response unit you know, or uh, a double crewed ambulance who gets sent to the job, you're often not got the full information, and you're arriving before that full information comes to uh, comes forward anyway. So you can already be in that t- kind of environment without realising it. Um, so I think. That's where having that kind of situational awareness comes into play. But also I think the public, you know recent inquests have have shown that rightfully so the public are, are, are not happy or accepting that ambulance staff and emergency services will sit around the corner uh, whilst uh, patients deteriorate. And so I think we need to kind of think about our, our level of, of risk. Um, and be pragmatic about that. So your day-to-day stabbings and um, interpersonal violence, that the whole situation where ambulance sits around the corner for 25 minutes is probably no longer applicable. And we need to be thinking about conducting our own uh, risk assessments. And, you know, that doesn't mean you have to go lights and sirens screeching into the street, but turning off your lights and sirens around the corner and just slowly edging towards the scene and seeing what the scene looks like. I think it's it's probably not acceptable anymore for, you know, a Saturday night on a high street, members of the public providing first aid, but ambulance not moving forward, waiting for police. So members of the public are providing first aid and, you know, the call taker can see that there's no or can hear that there's no threat within the area then then we should be moving to that patient to start providing care so I think dynamic risk assessments need to come to the forefront and I think that's something that we were we were comfortable doing uh, and got more comfortable doing and so hopefully that's something that can kind of make its way out uh, to to the ambulance service as a whole now and, you know, I don't want to, I'm not telling people that they need to go flying into dangerous situations, but being more pragmatic and making a, a dynamic risk assessment is, is probably where we need to be moving forward.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting discussion, actually. And, and you mentioned it earlier, but I just want to clarify, how does the tactical response unit and joint response paramedic differ from sort paramedics?
1: I think the main thing is is probably more regular training and more regular exposure to that kind of environment and that it's a full-time job or team. So I think, you know, most ambulance services, some have sort response vehicles um, and people seconded to those permanently. Uh, But most ambulance services sort is kind of like an on-call feature. Something happens and people will get called in to then make that response. Whereas the tactical response unit is a a 24-7 response that is out there and ready to respond within within minutes and instead of you know I think most saw kind of recertifications a six monthly or yearly uh tactical response unit is uh, a rolling uh rotor um that involves training uh training week every every kind of eight weeks I think it was if I remember correctly so yeah the actual kind of response to a major incident tactical response unit and sort are probably the same it's just that tactical response unit is would be that initial wave because they're there and available Um, and then you also have the day-to-day response work that sits outside of sort like the support to security operations uh, type work
0: and Just want to clarify then, how does this tactical response unit support the wider emergency preparedness, resilience and response function of London Eyement Service for events and incidents?
1: Yeah, so TRU sits under EPRR um, based at the same um, base as the EPRR team. Um, And so uh, as well as providing the kind of normal uh, Tactical Response Unit. The um, most TRU operatives are trained in MRT, which is Mobile Response Team uh, within London, which is training to uh, work within dense crowds at events, and will be utilised to to work at those events such as uh, Notting Hill Carnival, um, New Year's Eve, those kind of big events. London Ambulance Service has always had a public order response team and members of the tactical response unit now are completing familiarization and training to uh, be part of the public order response team to respond to uh, public order incidents where members of the police force are in public order equipment and can provide that initial kind of care in a in a threat environment again albeit a different threat to that of a firearms incident
0: so Callum you are a specialist paramedic in critical care with Great Western Air Ambulance Charity can you tell us about your journey into critical care and becoming a specialist paramedic
1: so I guess I um always had a kind of interest in in critical care um, and that side of things from when I was a uh, from when I was a student, right up, so it was always kind of an aim, uh, I guess. But like, what's important, I think, is uh, gaining experience and, and exposure and stuff before you kind of move into into that. So, um, yeah, I always kind of uh, had that as an aim. So I tried to find things that would help me uh, moving forward. Different, uh, you know, different job roles and uh, volunteer experiences and different experiences. And then I, kind of somebody who always needs something happening or like a you know learning somehow, uh, and so uh, decided to start my masters and and chose a critical care kind of masters uh, one uh, by distance, which is uh, back in Australia uh, purely from a uh, financial. Point, really uh, I can put it on my um, uni debt back in Australia whether as in the UK I would have been a an international student and uh, uh, agenda for change doesn't really allow for that much money. So I did that which was which was great and learned a lot through a lot through doing that. and then yeah when the job came up at uh, at, at GWAC, just kind of went through the application process and um, was lucky enough to 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 get through and, and get the trainee uh, trainee job. And then yeah, it's about uh, depending on how you go, but about eighteen months to two years on average from starting as a as a trainee to qualifying as a as a CCP or an SPCC as they call it now.
0: So you undertook your master's in critical care. How much did this change your practice or was it more like, was it more like consolidation?
1: Yeah, I think it was, it was huge for me. I think it's probably different person to person. Um, But for me, it was huge. And like you say, it is mostly consolidation um, in that, you know, you're learning more in depth, kind of uh, pathophysiology, pharmacology, bioscience that kind of thing Um so it's more in depth but it is building on your kind of undergraduate uh, knowledge um, but I guess what it really did for me um, was kind of uh, frame my thinking um, slightly different and really show that for me that kind of you know uh, critical care I mean paramedicine in general but critical care uh, especially it's uh, it kind of gets thought about I think in in general, a lot about, you know, lots of new skills and, and drugs to use and that kind of thing. But really it's uh, all about decision-making um, and using your experiences, your exposure and your knowledge to to make try and make the right decision, um, whether that is to intervene or to not intervene. Um, so yeah, it really kind of helped shape uh, shape my thinking uh around that and my decision making processes it was hu- hugely beneficial for me um i think for other people it, it's probably not not so much you know I'm, I'm certainly not saying that everyone has to go and do a masters kind of thing um yeah for me it was very beneficial
0: what does the trainee specialist paramedic critical care training involve
1: so uh the swast uh swastway i think it, it varies what kind of what a critical care paramedic is varies place to place across the country and the globe even. Um, but certainly for us, um, it's a long but, you know, important process for it to be, to, to be that long. And Takes in a lot of kind of theoretical training and background knowledge training, and you know, kind of inject sessions and days on on different topics from um, specialists within those within those fields. You know, so everything from anatomy and physiology to specific conditions such as environmental drowning, cardiac issues, etc., and teaching from. Uh, other critical care paramedics with interest in those fields, but also, you know, consultant uh, physicians uh, with specialist knowledge and interest in those fields. So that's really beneficial. The kind of formal training pathway is a. So you start and have an induction and you start those kind of theory sessions. And then we have four portfolios to complete across the time period. So you've got a portfolio around sedation and anesthesia and the use of things like ketamine and uh, midazolam and those kind of drugs you've got an airway management and intubation portfolio and as part of that you undertake theater placements in both adult and pediatric theaters then you've got a kind of background knowledge portfolio that you map across your kind of Undergraduate, postgraduate study, those inject days, um, and courses such as you know ALS courses, PhDLS courses, that um, that kind of thing, and then a fourth uh, portfolio, which is a, a skills portfolio. So that's where you kind of have to get signatures and, and signed off on live cases by qualified uh, CCPs or or doctors on the extra skills you know so well all skills really so patient assessment primary survey secondary survey ECG interpretation but then those extra skills such as pre anesthetics blood transfusions finger fluorocostomy etc so it's a big body of work um, and then yeah the time frame is roughly 18 months to two years usually to be able to get Enough signatures and to have be, have gone through all of the portfolios and completed enough cases, um, to to be able to submit that for sign off. And at the same time, we have uh, different sign off points. So you have an initial kind of uh, sign off period where you complete four live patients um, and or simulations and simulations as well well, yeah, we need to kind of do an adult medical and trauma and a paediatric medical medical and trauma patient uh, to, to an acceptable standard. And that kind of signed you off with some skills. Um, so, for example, ketamine at an analgesia level and to be able to work with a kind of signed-off CCP or a, sign, a signed-off critical care doctor as part of a team rather than being supernumerary that's usually around month three to six. And then at your final kind of 12 months or 18 months, when you're ready to sign off, you do a another set of simulations and scenarios um, to, to sign off as a, as a fully qualified uh, specialist, paramedic in critical care, where you can then work uh, independently and have uh, your kind of full range of surgical skills, sedation, um blood transfusion um uh, paralysis, that kind of that kind of thing.
0: It's a lot of training isn't it And did you find this this two years of being a trainee and having these portfolios and this training that you got set you up well for the job and what you were going to?
1: Yeah, I think I, I think it does and I think that's why it's important that it's that it's so long so I think I I think I signed off in roughly, I think around sixteen months or something, uh, and I think yeah, any any quicker than that, and you just you don't get the exposure and the experience, and you're still you know that sign off point when you qualify is um, an interesting an interesting point I think because you are then signed off, but then that's kind of where a lot of the learning starts and where you start to figure out your own way of doing things, and so it, it does set you up well, but by by no means does it. Um, is that kind of like the finish line, I guess. Um, it, it's, it's the start of the next stage, which I think is building your own practice and being comfortable with your own practice. But yeah, much shorter, and I just don't think that uh, you would have the exposure to the patients to, uh, to work um, at that level kind of by yourself with those extra skills.
0: And did you have any moments of doubt during this trainee phase where this this isn't for me? Did you ever sort of think I'm not good enough or have any sort of feelings of that imposter syndrome while you were going through this phase?
1: Oh, nearly daily to this day. <laughs> I, I don't think I ever had the thought of this isn't for me. I always knew that this is what I wanted to do. But that kind of feeling of, um, you know, not not being good enough or am I good enough? Um to to do this, you know, being a fraud, that kind of thing is yeah, it's something I've had in many different kind of uh experiences previously, but certainly in this and and you still have now like I go home from some shifts thinking pretty you know, did some pretty good work there or or on top of that. And then go home from other shifts where you're just like, like what am I doing? Like am I the like how out of my depth am i i think i've always been quite harsh on myself you know and i might think that because we missed a, you know a single minor injury or something like that but if you think you're i don't know some people probably can believe that they're that they know it all and and that's and that works for them and that's fine but i don't know i don't think i would ever ever worked for me it's a bit dangerous in healthcare i think as there's, there's always there's so much out there that you're never going to know everything and you know recognizing your limitations or where you're you might not be as strong as others is, is a key aspect as well i think um and and not being afraid to kind of admit that and let your team know so that you can kind of uh look after each other and, and that's the point of a team isn't it you make up for kind of each other's strengths and weaknesses
0: and when you were going through those difficult times then and you mentioned that you you felt a fraud in some cases did you share those feelings with the team then and I just wondered how did you come together to, to work through those
1: yeah I think so I, I think um I certainly have have been very lucky throughout my uh, career to kind of have you know many different people at different stages that have been really helpful for me um i'm certainly one of the those kind of people that just wants feedback on on cases and wants to discuss where things went well where things went wrong and how we can improve on it kind of moving forward so i'm pretty open with chatting about um chatting about cases and uh, and where improvements and stuff can be made so we certainly found that beneficial I think it's very beneficial having you know colleagues who have been through the same experience that you can that you can chat to but also you know at home just being able to kind of uh, rant or get a perspective from outside the ambulance service is also really handy
0: Was it what you expected working within critical care?
1: Yeah I think so uh, it mostly was what I expected. Well, I guess what has kind of become more and more apparent over the, the last few years and within the industry as a whole, I think, is just how important the non-medical side of things are. So that crew resource management, the human factors, the that whole side, I think, is probably even more important than I initially realized. So that's huge Um, and then also I guess the other side of things which I again knew was there but kind of probably didn't expect as much of it to be there is that uh, how responsible you end up feeling not only for the patient but for their family and you know quite often some of the things that I reflect on or come away from aren't so much how about how our clinical treatment went but did we make the patient uh if they're conscious or the family how did we make them feel and and, and did we interact properly with with them and and you know turn a, hor- a horrendous experience into are you never going to make it a better experience but did we kind of lessen the impact as much as possible so yeah i think that was not a surprise but Kind of just interesting on on how much that kind of falls to you.
0: And what have you found most challenging within your role at the moment? Like what what really tests you and pushes you that you weren't quite aware of before? Uh,
1: everything. <laughs> I think it's uh, everything's just kind of a constant, uh, an ongoing, an ongoing challenge. I guess which is kind of what I like. I think there's no kind of space to. Th- stand still and I think if you kind of start to get comfortable and you're on top of things then that's when we can kind of look at what something new that we can do or how can we change something else to kind of push things forward again. So I think everything's kind of an ongoing challenge to try and improve to make us be the best we can be and, and to have the best outcomes for our patients.
0: Anything like personally that's really like stood out or you've recognised along this journey in, in critical care that you you were surprised by or that caught you out?
1: I think what you realise more and more as you kind of go through what I've realised more and more is that there is this big area of grey and that area of grey is probably increasing uh, and the black and white is decreasing and you know there's many different ways to give an anesthetic to treat patient a to treat patient b and you might take two different clinicians three different clinicians or teams and they'll all have a slightly different way of treating that patient none of which are exactly right or wrong there's just you know it's all as i think it's all about being able to justify are you doing this are you doing your interventions for the patient and you know do they make sense are they backed up by uh, evidence etc and 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 yeah I guess that's something when you step into critical care that comes more more to the front because kind of working as a paramedic you kind of in the UK you've you've got your JRCO guidelines and in Australia you've got your service guidelines and that kind of thing and that's your kind of Bible of mainstay of treatment. Whereas as you move through critical care, you use a number of different areas of, of evidence and different guidelines for for different things to come up with the kind of bespoke plan for that patient, um, and that can take some getting used to and being comfortable with kind of acting outside of a tradition, your traditional guideline kind of thing.
0: Can you tell us more about your role as a paramedic educator? So I believe you have experience with teaching search and rescue paramedics out in Norway and you've had some time spent in Ukraine. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I guess um, uh, education is something that I've always been really interested in. Uh, I guess that comes from my kind of, uh, kind of the sport background and the coaching side of things. Um, I've been lucky enough to have been, you know, taught by and, um, educated and mentored by some some fantastic clinicians Mm -hmm. and that just kind of makes me want to pass that on to the next people uh, coming through so yeah I've uh, spent some time um, at St. George's University when I was in London uh, doing some teaching there with their undergrad program Um, now at uh, Monash University doing some teaching on their postgraduate program um, by distance which has been Uh, Fantastic. Uh, And then, yeah, um, through GWAC, we've been uh, lucky enough to head out to Ukraine a couple of times to do some teaching for civilians uh, on kind of first aid um, and then also teaching and experience sharing with some kind of military, uh, military medics from the Ukrainian military about everything really from, you know, basic first aid to more in their stabilisation points about kind of airway management and uh, blood transfusions and all sorts of different things. So that's that was a great experience. And then, yeah, uh, we have got a partnership over in Norway. And so earlier this year, we went out to go and do some teaching with their search and rescue nurses and, and paramedics. Which is great, and I think you know the best thing about, although we're being asked to come over and do some teaching, and we do some teaching for them, the kind of shared uh, knowledge and experience that you get back from teaching in different environments and learning from from the people that you're over there to 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 teach is is fantastic. Um, So obviously, you know, Norway is is vast, and so they have some very different experiences managing patients over over long periods of time or out at sea on oil rigs and that kind of thing. So yeah, that was a great uh, great experience and hopefully we've been able to, to help get some education out to those different areas as well.
0: And why is paramedic education so important to you and what do you hope to achieve within paramedic education?
1: I think it's just the it's just the fundamental building blocks of everything as a profession that we that we do moving forward, isn't it? I think that to move the profession forward, we need to move our education forward, and and make sure that we have that kind of knowledge uh, um there to to build on. It is the fundamental building block. Um, without the knowledge behind the things we do, then we're just kind of following a, a protocol, I think we should always think about the why we're doing an intervention, how that intervention is going to affect that patient and, and what the possible outcomes of that intervention might be. So I hope that paramedic education will continue to grow and I hope that, you know, there'll be more undergraduate, postgraduate learning programs and more on on kind of on-job training and, and chance for education as well at GUAC there's a few of us that are starting an outreach program where we're looking to bring local ambulance crews into the into the airbase for you know CPD days um, where we can do some lectures and some simulations and stuff but also just make ourselves available out at, at, at hospitals and on stations to go over anything and discuss anything that uh that people want to because i think although formal education works for some people it doesn't work for everyone and so that kind of more informal crew room discussion and and training stuff is 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 equally as important so hopefully moving forward there'll be more kind of streams of, of education for paramedics and we can just provide some some good building blocks for people to to move forward and enhance their their knowledge and enjoyment
0: yeah absolutely that sounds really good and so Callum you recently presented at the trauma care conference this week and you were presenting on myth busting in critical care trauma and improving emergency care team working and you mentioned some really great points and I I want to summarize some of these within the podcast just so we can share share these points further are you happy to to cover some of what you you mentioned in that presentation
1: yeah absolutely
0: we began talking about analgesia and you mentioned just being really confident in the use of morphine can you can you expand on that
1: yeah so i think there's um A kind of concern, uh, there seems to be a bit of a concern around morphine and quite often we'll get called for advice about analgesia or called for kind of enhanced analgesia options. And I think we often kind of can see patients with significant injuries who have been given kind of small amounts, you know, one, two, three milligrams of morphine over an extended period of time. And I think the kind of concern is the respiratory depression and the Kind of cardiovascular depress- um, depression and hypotension and that kind of thing, and it is right to be concerned about um, about what we do. But, but overall, morphine is a is a really safe drug, and it's a it's a fantastic analgesic option. And someone who is in significant pain is is going to respond differently to me or you. You know, if me, if me or you are sitting here now having a chat and a given 10 milligrams of IV morphine will probably become quite sleepy and quite quickly. But if my ankle's facing the wrong way, then, then that's going to counteract that. So trying to kind of keep it simple, it's just about, you know, morphine safe therapeutic ranges is, is good and things that patients remember are being in pain. And so, you know, no matter whether it's a, significantly injured patient or someone who's got some chest pain or has just fallen at home you know leaving suffering is one of the key things we can do as a as a paramedic so hypotension often with morphine is 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 usually quite transient it's mostly related to kind of histamine release a lot of the time Um, and so if we're giving it kind of slowly and in appropriate doses, you know, 5, 10 milligrams of morphine for a significant injury is absolutely appropriate and um, and will help your patient a lot. So it's right to be cautious, but just be reassured, I guess, is what I want people to kind of be uh, around morphine, that you can safely give appropriate doses um, to patients. And, you know, even if that blood pressure is lower than normal and they're a trauma patient, morphine is is going to be safe in most situations just just be more cautious uh, than you otherwise would but
0: there's there's some great points there and another one was regarding correct equipment use and knowing your equipment and you use the phrase train how you fight uh you gave a great example of pelvic binder use and splinting can can you expand on that please
1: yes i think the way we've Trained certainly the way I was trained anyway causes some issues in that um, you'll remember you'll kind of fall to that level of of training um, in stressful situations and so if we're training to fold a pelvic binder or you know to get good air entry on a mannequin with a BVM push down on that mannequin's face gives you better air entry then when we're under stress. Uh, a lot of the time, that's what we'll do. We know that, you know, pushing down on a patient's face is going is going to include their airway. We need to pull the jaw up into the mask to to provide good ventilations. Similarly, with pelvic binders, you know, folding the pelvic binder rather than cutting it in training because we don't we can't afford or don't, or don't want to pay for new pelvic binders each time is. You know understandable, but we just need to remember that folding a pelvic binder isn't going to provide that traction that the, that the patient needs to close their pelvis. So we need to bring the feet together, we need to cut the binder to the appropriate size um, and make sure that binder is going onto skin as well, because often these. Patients will have that binder on for quite a significant amount of time. And so, any underwear or clothing underneath the binder will get in the way of uh, surgical operation and also can cause pressure sores and stuff. So, it needs to be to skin. But yeah, knowing your equipment, it just gives you more bandwidth. So, certainly, I can remember having my whole bandwidth taken up by trying to put on a traction splint or, you know, in the early days, intubating somebody. Whereas if you can practice those fight, those motor skills to make them part of your kind of rote memory, putting the tourniquet on, putting the traction splint on, et cetera, then you won't have to think about that. And that leaves your bandwidth open to be able to think about the patient as a whole whilst you're completing that task. So it can be difficult to, to have time to, to practice. But, you know, if you're at hospital waiting to hand over for a period of time, you know, in the morning, whilst you're having a morning coffee or something, you just practice with your your crewmates and, and colleagues, putting a, a tourniquet on each other, bandage on each other. When you get to that stressful situation, it'll just make your life a bit easier.
0: Thank you. That's some great points. You also presented on Penetrating Trauma. You gave a great example of... A patient who had been injured with bicycle wheel spokes and there was a really small wound on on the chest and you made a great point saying that external wound size does not matter and you highlighted that you got to you know expose the patient and thoroughly look and feel both at the back and 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 axilla for these injuries and can you go into that more please
1: yeah absolutely um People who are looking to injure other people uh, often have thought about it and are smart, and so sometimes they'll look to maim rather than kill. Sometimes they'll use small objects, or it could just be that they've, you know, picked up whatever's next to them in that moment. And so the kind of traditional training big wound is not always present, but we can't be falsely reassured by that certainly the case that we were talking about at trauma care was a, a patient who had a cardiac tamponade from a wound that was you know probably less than a centimeter wide externally um but was into the right you know hit the right area so i guess still sometimes we can arrive at scenes and find uh, people being falsely reassured by a, a a deep but small wound so yeah make sure you look in the groins make sure you look in the axillas. you properly expose that patient then warm them so we don't want them getting cold but with thighs of knives or, or spokes and stuff these days those um, and especially if we start thinking about ballistic mm-hmm. ballistic trauma where you know, your your bullet or shrapnel can travel absolutely anywhere within the body it's it's important not to be falsely reassured by a by a small external wound because under that internally, there can be all sorts of damage.
0: And you mentioned about tension pneumothorax and that paramedics were decompressing these chests, but you know the sites were way too low. And so I'm, I think someone raised a great point that these models, which everyone's been training on had you know they didn't have that sort of end of the clavicle area so everyone's been practicing on these models which weren't fit for purpose because everyone's been putting these sites far too too medial can you just tell us more about that please
1: yeah so the point was raised um by one of the uh, audience members that yeah a lot of the mannequins don't have a full clavicle um to to be able to look at how, how far a clavicle actually extends um when you're looking for mid-clavicular line and that the space that's provided for decompression and the mannequins, whether that be an auxiliary or uh, chest decompression, are often not actually in the right place. So again, it kind of comes back to that. When we're stressed, we kind of go to go back to what we've committed to memory. And if the mannequin's not correct, then then we're already in the wrong place. And that was certainly something that I learned moving into into critical care with, you know, having finger for me and your Scope of practice, you kind of really need to get the anatomical marking correct. And it's very easy not to, and difficult in patients who, especially, if we're looking at tension pneumothorax, you know, have significant chest injuries and things. So, I guess what I'd recommend to people is always, if you can, just get it double checked by a colleague. And um, that only takes about three or four seconds to get someone just to go, yep, yeah, looks right, or actually, maybe you're a bit low. Uh, But also just, you know, again, crewmates or uh, partners, children, parents, you know, whatever it is, if you get the chance just to kind of have a look and find that um, second intercostal space midclavicular line or fourth or fifth intercostal space um, mid auxiliary line, then that's a great chance to practice on on a real person. You know, certainly I remember when I was a student kind of listening to my uh, friends and stuff, uh, chest for um, auscultation to practice auscultating and taking blood pressures on each other and that kind of thing. So I'd I'd do that if if you could with uh chest decompression again, because you know, all of these kind of things we're talking about, uh in stressful critical situations um, and you might be doing it for the first time so i think the more i've the more trauma i see or the, uh, the more critical care i see the more i realize and know that the essentials and keeping things simple is the best way to do things um so the more kind of practice you get in a controlled non-stressful environment the easier your life will be when Uh, you've got a stressful scene, people screaming and a a super sick patient in front of you.
0: So Callum, I just want to raise a point that you focused on within your talk at trauma care, and it was preparing for critical care. And I think this is such a great uh, slide that you presented. And it was a great discussion about how road crews can prepare and do more for the arrival of critical care. Can you expand on some of the points that you raised?
1: Yeah, so I think um, one of the requests we get quite often uh, is for pre-hospital anaesthetic, and so this kind of mostly focused around uh, preparing for that, I suppose. But you can take most of the concepts and and use them for no matter what we're kind of coming for, we're, we're a needy bunch. Um, and so quite often, whether it's uh, sedation or whether it ends up being blood product administration, whatever it is, we usually need quite a bit of equipment and, and logistics around that. And actually, if you if you think about a pre-hospital anaesthetic, the only thing that the critical care team need to de- deliver themselves really is, is the administration of the drugs and the intubation. And then that ongoing care um, everything else to get to that stage can be can be done by uh by a by an ambulance crew and certainly some of the jobs that I think back to that have been kind of the most satisfying and where we've been the, the most slick has has been where the ambulance crews have literally been all over it and just had that patient really well prepared for our arrival so I guess the kind of the key concepts uh, or the key things are uh, oxygen. There's usually quite a high oxygen requirement, so um, two or three bottles of oxygen around, if possible. So we'll need one for the one for the ventilator, one for all the kind of bag valve mask or maples and circuit, and then usually one for nasal oxygenation as well having that nasal oxygen on the patient is also really helpful. Just standard nasal prongs. Um, if you're using N-tidal CO2 nasal monitoring, uh, it, it, we don't use those for the oxygenation because the two prongs that actually go up the nose um, are what are used to sample the CO2. So I'm all for CO2, and I think it's a great tool to have, but we'll just switch them over at the last minute um, when we're pre-oxygenating the patient uh, because the oxygen is actually delivered in like a cloud system at the bottom of the CO2 um, sample device. And so actually you're not necessarily delivering that amount of oxygen to the patient. So we'll switch them over. We'll definitely need a suction cap- a suction unit with a, a Yanker uh, catheter on it. Um, and if we can have a backup one, that's always handy. But just one, two points of access, whether that be IV or IO. And I guess that's kind of also a reminder just to be confident in moving to IO. If you've got an unconscious kind of uh, patient who needs access, um, then then moving to IO access if you're unable to get IV is is uh, perfectly reasonable. Just remember, like, if you've got a tibial IO in with a massive pelvic fracture kind of thing, they'll probably won't. Wouldn't prefer that. So if you go for humeral head in those kind of patients, that's great. Um, but two points of access because we always want some redundancy and backup. But also if we're giving kind of blood and calcium at the same time, or anaesthetic and blood at the same time, then having multiple points of access is great. If you can connect one to a bag of fluid, that doesn't have to be you know running or anything like that. Um, we may rehydrate the patient in some conditions, but um, just for flush and that kind of thing. And then the other thing that we'll try and avoid if we can at all is is intubating the patient on the floor. We want them on the bed and well positioned. So having them up off the up off the road or off the floor onto the stretcher is great. Remembering to keep them nice and warm. And then making sure that their airways in a good position. So it's really important to kind of in any airway management, my key kind of point for anyone is that position. Position, position, position is, is your friend. So, you know, having some blankets uh, starting under their shoulders and then working back to get that kind of ear to sternal notch ramped type position will make your life easier for any kind of airway management. And then just optimising their airway and ventilation. So if you need an OPA in it or an or a eye gel in or uh, whatever you need, having those in and ventilating them, targeting your kind of end tide or carbon dioxide and oxygen saturations. And similarly for hemodynamics, the move to positive pressure ventilation um, and the medications used for an anaesthetic can all lead to hypotension. So giving a fluid bolus if it's indicated, uh, post-ROSC patients if you're indicated for post-ROSC adrenaline and that kind of thing is, is important. So they're kind of, they're probably the key things that the ambulance crews can do prior to our arrival that'll just absolutely cut down the amount of time and um, that it takes to be able to provide that uh that anesthetic
0: thank you those are, those are such great points and i hope our listeners have taken a lot away from that so callum your enthusiasm and commitment to your work really stands out and emulates the success that you have had in your career where has this commitment come from and why do you continuously challenge yourself
1: good question i i think of just coming kind of through you know playing sport and um then kind of being involved in that kind of elite level sport and and coaching for a small amount of time I kind of just saw lots of people striving to be the, the the best that they could be and kind of find that quite inspiring and I think you know at the end of the day we need to remember that at the end of every call no matter how major or minor for us, there's a there's a patient and someone uh, in distress, and so I guess you want to kind of be at your best and and keep trying to improve so that you can provide uh, the best care to them and relieve their pain and suffering and um, help out that uh, the start of their journey to kind of recovery of of whatever they're suffering from when we. I'm in contact with them you know and it's difficult I've certainly had periods of feeling feeling burnt out and we all go through those kind of per- periods and stuff so I think when it gets hard like that and it's uh it, that's kind of what I come back to is just remembering that uh, you know it's not it's not about me it's about that that patient at the end of the at the end of the day
0: how do you deal with failure
1: that's a journey for sure isn't it um uh, getting kind of yeah, getting used to and comfortable with that is is difficult and definitely something that I've um, had to work on. I think the biggest the biggest lessons that I've learned around that are kind of that actually mistakes, making a mistake or failing at something, is great learning opportunity for next time. And some of the biggest learning points that you'll ever have are when, when you've made mistakes. Yeah, I think to kind of try and change the way that, uh, changing the way that I've that I thought about making mistakes from, um, you know, my girlfriend likes to say that I catastrophize things a bit and always uh, think about the kind of worst case scenario and so Learning from from uh, her there and putting a, a positive spin on things and changing the way that I think about um, think about mistakes makes it easier to to kind of deal with and it's it's still difficult you know like it's definitely not something I uh, I like doing or enjoy by any means but my working plan and, and what I currently try and do to try and help get through that is uh, turn it into a learning experience not only for me but for others as well I guess that's kind of the point of outreach and the point of that talk at trauma care was that you know I've made plenty of mistakes there's no point you guys making them as well I may as well tell them tell you about them so that um so that no one else has to so yeah that's the current uh thought but it's still not a not something that I enjoy when it happens
0: thank you for sharing that and I hope you don't mind but I will I will share this piece of advice that you you gave me. You once advised me to have no fear of being disciplined if mistakes happen. You said they are very much a learning opportunity and a system problem. And then don't let any old school people scare you into making a mistake. That means being struck off or fired. And it kind of emulates what you've just said there. And I just think it's like a really good message to have and not be so fearful especially for for any newly qualified paramedics currently going through this journey is not to fear when things go wrong and try and view things as a learning opportunity obviously you don't want to make any any mistakes but try not to have such like a view of like fear that surrounds us as well because we are still all learning and inevitably mistakes sometimes do happen and it's how we learn from those to make sure we don't make the same mistakes happening again is key.
1: Absolutely. We all make mistakes. And I think, you know, the time that you when you will find yourself in trouble is if those aren't mistakes as such, or they're more kind of malicious or negligent in nature, but a genuine mistake um, is is by no means uh, like the end of your career. And I guess... I mean, I used kind of old school as an example there because that's what I kind of experienced coming up. but um you know there is some some of the people that I've learned most from and have taught me the most are kind of kind of classed as old school, I guess you could say. but there is there seems still to be a bit of that kind of cultural thing where you hear those kind of terms chucked around like oh, it's you know, it's my registration or I'm not risking my registration and and all that kind of stuff. and I think. You know, one of the best things I uh, have done is kind of look back through the HCPC hearings website, and you'll just notice on there that there's no, there's no one who's who, who's been struck off or disciplined for making a single genuine mistake. The things that cause issues there are m- misconduct, genuine negligence, um, or, or kind of criminal um, issues. And when you find yourself in trouble, is if you try and hide mistakes or pretend that it didn't happen. Not only do you find yourself in trouble if that comes out, but you also just don't learn from that. And um, whereas if you, you know, make a mistake, put put your hand up and do your candour, you know, let the patient know, let the let uh, you know the correct system know, and use it as a learning experience. Then hopefully that kind of you know I know very much a number of years ago ambulance services probably didn't do this well and this is where the culture is born from and that probably there was discipline. where Everything was seen as a disciplinary process but you know certainly uh, within you know most ambulance services I know of now and certainly within the kind of clinical directorate at, at Southwest Ambulance Service where, where I am now the clinical director and medical director, paramedic leaders are all very good people who uh, only want to kind of help people to to move to move forward. So it's a it's a much more supportive process. And yeah, I think you kind of the more you fear a mistake, the more you subconsciously push yourself into making one. So yeah, we all make mistakes. As long as you learn from them, you're open and uh it's not malicious, then there's nothing to fear really.
0: How much have you been influenced by the people around you and what traits and qualities do you value most in people?
1: massively influenced by people around me and all sorts of different people you know from family friends colleagues it's just yeah I think one of the best things you can do I guess is just kind of you know you want to be your own person but you can certainly learn the best and worst traits out of others and take those to kind of help yourself Uh, I, I think traits and qualities they've commitment is probably a big one some some you know people who are really committed to kind of trying to do things to the best of their ability and passionate about that kind of thing I think the big one as well within our job you know is is humor and being able to relax and and um de-stress I guess so yeah being kind of having good humor and uh downtime and fun to to be around I guess is kind of quite helpful as well.
0: How do you manage the stresses of such an intense and demanding role?
1: I'm a massive fan of kind of visualization. I think um, the Dr. Cliff Reed from Sydney Hems, I really like his stuff around um, like the best simulator and simulation, that, or the best simulator that there is in the world is your own brain. And so I, you know, when I was at uni going to into osces and that kind of thing, I'd just run through the OSCE in my head kind of thing. And I still do that to this day for, you know, I'll think on the way to jobs, I'll try and think about things, but often, you know, if you're responding solo, you can't do that so much. So I'll just listen to kind of different podcasts and kind of go through different scenarios in my head. And then you feel like you've already been there when they pop up. So yeah, I'm a, a big fan of kind of visualizing and, and, and practicing and, and like I we spoke about earlier kind of practicing those motor skills so that they don't take up my bandwidth um, and if I know if a patient needs x intervention I know that I can just perform that intervention without having to think about it too much because it's been practiced and then I guess the other thing is don't underestimate kind of how good breathing is you know simply when you hit the on scene or if we're on the, on the halley, kind of when you get out of the halley, just taking one kind of deep breath just slows everything down um, and stops that kind of massive sympathetic response. And then it just lets my brain think a bit. So definitely wouldn't underestimate that, and as well as kind of having that chance to to step away. I think one recommendation I would give people is if they're struggling in terms of starting to become overwhelmed, um, but they don't feel comfortable kind of stepping away or or saying that is just to go back to primary survey and just do an A to D head to toe assessment and then you pretty much already know what you're going to find so you're not actually thinking too much about that but it uh gives you a chance to kind of reset and regain some composure so I think that's quite handy and then being part of a team having a 5 10 15 minute plan so you want to be here in 5 minutes you want to be here in 10 minutes and and that kind of thing and then using the team so if you're overwhelmed then offload a task to to somebody else if you're struggling with a task that you've been allocated then just being putting your hand up and saying sorry guys i'm i'm struggling a bit this you know i can someone just remind me how to do this like that's that's not an issue at all and if certainly if someone says that at a scene i'm on then you know more than happy to go and help them out with that and if people respond negatively to that and that's probably because they're also cognitive overload and they're not you know they're stressed we should never kind of look down or become annoyed at somebody for asking asking for help I'd much rather someone ask for help than struggle I remember so you know a perfect example is I remember of when I didn't kind of put my hand up was my first ever cardiac arrest and back in uh, Victoria then we didn't have pre-drawn one in 10,000 cardiac arrest adrenaline so I just got I got handed five vials of adrenaline to draw up five five doses of adrenaline, and so I was doing that, and I got about two and a half three vials down, and because I was stressed, I've got a lot of air in the syringe, and so the syringe was at the bottom, so I couldn't get any more into it, and I just did not have the bandwidth for the knowledge to think that oh if I turn this upside down, then all the air will go to the top, and I can push this out and start drawing up the adrenaline again. And so I spent five, six minutes trying to troubleshoot this to no avail of drawing up adrenaline and squirting adrenaline all over the room and everywhere except into the patient. So, you know, whereas that would have been a three-second fix for one of my mentors if I had been – if I had just said, oh, guys, what am I doing wrong here? They would have gone turn it upside down and then we probably would have joked about it and I would have copped a bit of banter afterwards. But, you know, it would have sorted the situation out. So just don't be stressed about um, about asking for help and – uh, and yeah, if you do receive that negative response, just know that it's that's on them, not on not on you. I guess they're my kind of tips and what I do to kind of chill things out on, on scene. And I know it's, everyone's different, but for me, kind of, I have many different kind of coping mechanisms of chilling out on my days off. And whether that's, you know, playing PlayStation, watching TV or going out for a, a run or a walk or something like that changes day to day on based on how I feel really.
0: So what's next for Callum? Any future aspirations?
1: Yeah I mean yeah good question. There, there, there's lots really I think um, the immediate kind of stuff that we're doing at GWAC at the moment I'm involved in our kind of clinical governance group and our outreach team and so hopefully they're kind of doing some cool stuff in that uh, in that regard and getting outreach kind of up and running as part of that team will be is kind of my immediate aims at the moment long term i don't know really just kind of continuing through the kind of ccp experience gaining some experience and exposure and then starting to kind of further progress in that uh, in that realm down the clinical route but uh, yeah not like any i don't have a guess at the moment like an exact role that i'm uh, aiming for as such it's just kind of progressing overall and uh, getting as um as, as good at the job as I can at the moment.
0: Thank you, Callum. Right, we're going to move on to our quick fire questions. And admittedly, some of these aren't quick fire. So um, if there's a story associated or if you want to go into a little bit more, then please do so. Are you ready?
1: I uh, will see in a minute, I guess.
0: What's your biggest pet peeve?
1: Probably, if I'm honest, is realizing that I've run out of chocolate and not bought any more chocolate. <laughs>
0: If you weren't a paramedic, what would you be? I think um,
1: probably being a bit of a kind of boring answer or nerd answer, I guess. I think it would just, I purely would have just gone across into one of the other emergency services and ended up in uh, fire or police.
0: Work or play?
1: It would be cool if we could eventually kind of involve both and do a bit of uh, kind of uh, adventure type medic stuff.
0: But if you have to pick one, which would it be?
1: Well, I, I guess. Some kind of sport.
0: Money or happiness?
1: Ambulance service, definitely happiness.
0: Salty or sweet?
1: Oh, sweet all day, every day.
0: <laughs> Are you more of an introvert or an extrovert? Uh, I, think
1: I'd I think I probably, Jay, I think I am a bit shy and introverted to start with, but once I get to know people, I probably become too
0: extroverted and they get a bit annoyed at me. <laughs> What was your last impulse buy?
1: The new FIFA game on PlayStation.
0: Are you where you want to be in life?
1: Oh, oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying lots. I think I'm one of those people who kind of can't sit still. So I guess I've always got something else trying, kind of on the on the back burner or want to start aiming for something else. So guess not. I guess something else will come up soon.
0: What is a lesson that took you a long time to learn?
1: I, I think it's it's probably that kind of turning failure and mistakes into a positive thing um, and not letting it just... I think I was definitely one of those people who if I made a mistake, I'd come home and that would be all I thought about for the next three days kind of thing.
0: How do you like strangers to remember you?
1: Oh, hopefully... Uh, hopefully passionate about what I'm doing
0: what quote resonates with you
1: oh I think I like that kind of quote around it you know you don't rise to the situation you um, uh, fall to your level of training so yeah I quite like that as a as a kind of quote for making sure your training's up to scratch
0: thank you Callum that summarizes our quick fire questions However, there is one last question I do want to ask, and we ask this to all our guests on Paramedicast. What take homes or pieces of advice would you have to paramedics looking to follow your footsteps?
1: The, be- the thing that's helped me the most is having uh, some good mentors uh, and people to kind of look up to. So you know, not just your kind of uni allocated placement mentors, but finding people who have the kind of attitude that you, that you kind of strive towards finding them and, and utilizing them to, to help you just constantly kind of strive for that, that why, and trying to figure out why you're, why you're doing things. What is the pathophysiology from this, in this situation? And what, um, what will your interventions do to, to, to that uh, patient and making sure that it's patient-centered. And just, you know, as we've spoken about, don't don't be afraid of admitting mistakes. Don't get, you know, it can be hard to not get burnt out and worn down with kind of the politics side of the job and, and that kind of thing, but just stay positive. And it's okay to be overwhelmed and, and ask for help. And on asking for help, you know, don't be afraid of asking of asking those mentors that you identify or the people that you identify that you want to kind of be like, I guess, um, don't be afraid of sending them an email or a message and asking if they've got any advice or any help. Cause most people remember what it was like to, to be a student or a newly qualified paramedic. So would be willing to, to kind of help out uh, wherever they can. So yeah, stay positive ask for help and just remember that we're very lucky to do the job that we do and use the motivation of being best you can for your patients
0: thank you Callum I've learned a lot from this discussion I hope our listeners have as well it's been really great to chat to you thank you for coming on the podcast
1: no no worries at all thank you very much for having me